This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Everything Tom Rich and myself have been up to Wednesday the 26th of October. It's earnings season and we've got ourselves deep in the numbers this morning, including speaking to the CEO of one of the banks that has announced their earnings. That would be Rack Bank and he would be Raheel Ahmed. He's been speaking to us about what rising inflation and interest rates mean for their smaller customers as well. We've also been looking at the Arabtech bankruptcy with the lawyer Mark Raymond of Pinsent Masons, looking at what it means for the construction industry in general. A little bit of a shindig going on down the road, meanwhile, in Saudi Arabia, where the great and good of the finance industry and others are gathering. We spoke to a man who is there, Talal Malik from Alpha One Strategy. All of that, plus we've been asking, how did you survive the great WhatsApp outage of 2022? It is earnings season and we are going through them this morning, whether it is containers off ships, uh, whether it is Coca-Cola in those weird, not quite paper, not quite plastic cups that you get at events. What do they count as? Mm, A portmanteau of paper and plastic. Probably lined with some kind of unrecyclable polymer, regardless, um, <laughs> or whether or not it is money in bank accounts. We are looking at what uh, the current earnings mean, not just for investors, but what they say is bellwethers of the economy to come. And in fact, we have a CEO hopefully being given a decent coffee in the green room. I'm glad to hear it. He being? He being the CEO of Rack Bank. Um, Rahil is going to be joining us in about 15 minutes' time, going to walk us through the Rack Bank numbers. Um, And it's a cracking set of numbers, as we mentioned earlier. It's the best since 2015 in terms of quarterly earnings for Rack Bank. 350-odd million dirhams profit. Great. So he's going to be telling us uh, how he achieved that, What, to what extent is that specific things happening at Rack Bank. And he's been in the job for not quite a year now so that'll be interesting to see to what extent is it a rising tide lifting all boats because we had the Maastricht numbers out yesterday and they were good as well they've been quoting operating profit I mean not quite as stellar but a 33% increase so a good set of numbers I wasn't here last week but I guess you guys will have seen the banking numbers from some of the other banks have we heard from them yet? We did we looked at UBS didn't we we looked at HSBC globally we did indeed yeah uh, loads of numbers coming through from the banks at last Last week, in fact, those numbers coming through the banks in the last couple of days uh, here in the region. Let's just give you some of those. Uh, so, uh, Abu Dhabi Commercial Banks Q3 profit jumping 25% to 432 million. Uh, DIB Dubai Islamic Bank Q3 profit rising 14% on higher revenue and lower provisioning. Uh, Mashrek, third quarter profit surging on growth across all business activities. Uh, Adib, Abu Dhabi Islamic Bank, earning record net, quarterly net profit of 274.9 million. There's a recurring trend amongst those numbers. <laughs> what is particularly interesting, and in fact, um, it'll be interesting to uh, hear from the guys at Rack Bank as well, who I still tend to think of as being sort of the, the SME bank. Really, I mean, they've they've done quite a lot to champion small and medium businesses here in the uh, in the UAE and services for them, which is not a bad niche to be in in a country like the UAE. But I know that some of those international earnings um, that we've mentioned have been hit by the 
stock market falls because if you're looking after the portfolios of the wealthy, they're paying you fees based on their portfolio. It's usually a bit of a percentage. Um, and if the portfolio falls, so does the fees you can charge. Yeah, it's a very valid point. If your portfolio, yeah, um, that's not such as a big part of Bank's business. I mean, they, they have wealth management and asset management. But again, these are the interesting questions we can put to him. And of course, rising interest rates. Typically, that's good for bank profitability, but not so good for the people borrowing the money. Their, their, their net interest margin typically increases as interest rates rise. But we'll ask if that's actually happening this time. Well, and if people are going to keep borrowing the money, because one of the earnings that we've seen come out um, has been Alphabet, um, Google for those of us of a certain generation, uh, they've seen ad revenue on YouTube fall. And the ads that have been hardest hit have actually been for financial products. They have been for mortgages, um, they have been for loans, they've been for crypto as well. Um, But as interest rates rise, people, and this is one of the point of raising interest rates to stop people um, investing and making big ticket purchases like houses and, and cars and the rest of it to cool the economy and therefore cool inflation. So if we're already seeing that from YouTube globally that people it's a, you know a, a bit of a sign that people might be less interested in in borrowing money what does that mean for a bank like Rackbank going forward yep we always get questions in don't we from SME owners saying look access to funding can still be challenging here as everywhere in the world so we'll be asking him about that as well right the big whatsapp outage of 2022 <laughs> did you both emerge Unscathed. Neither of you actually, it must be said, known for your communication skills. I, I, but no, there were a lot of spinning dials on my uh, WhatsAppy thingies yesterday. Um, I thought it was just me because I've got an old phone and I'm a technophobe. Uh, but then it turns out I'm, I was not alone. I thought it was just me because I've got a new phone and I'm a technophobe. <laughs> <laughs> Similarly, though, it wasn't the phone. Not about the bike. What? What? About an hour was it? Late, late, late morning. Do you know? And this, I felt so much better about because I spend a ridiculous amount of time on my phone, and I'm also the world's promptest WhatsApp um, uh, replier, unless I'm actually talking on the radio, um, or in the gym, or uh, asleep. Anything else, you generally get a reply from me pretty quick. Smart. I don't like leaving people. Waiting. Also, we work in an industry that if someone asks you a question, um, there's a chance they need an answer pretty fast. Do you Uh, give lessons? Because they might give words. Yeah, Richard, you're averaging about two days for a WhatsApp reply, by the way. Don't take it personally. I've learned not to. Um, But I didn't notice. I was doing a pre-recorded interview yesterday um, and I got a phone call shocker um from uh, from the woman who was setting it up to say, I'm just letting you know X, Y and Z, da, da, da. And she said, I'm phoning you because WhatsApp's down. I hadn't noticed. The ARN news team, we were on it like a flash because, yeah, I I use it constantly. I don't answer my phone anymore. WhatsApp is my lifeline. And literally all of us were like... Hang on, hang on, hang on. Aren't you manning the news desk? Yeah, no, but not like that. I mean, WhatsApp's used for everything now. It's just that's what I do. So the bat phone's going off. (laughs) I'm literally no, all three of you there. Not going, answering I'm it. not answering it. I'm talking about my own phone, Tom. <laughs> I'm not answering that. Don't no answer way. my own phone. But yeah, literally, we were just on it. And DM me. It was breaking news. Um, and literally, we were one of the first to actually 
notify uh, the general public. But yeah, WhatsApp services uh, briefly disrupted yesterday for roughly two hours, I think. Uh, everybody reverted to Twitter and it was almost like this sigh of relief. I mean, 142,000, more than 142,000 tweets of hashtag WhatsApp down because everybody wanted reassurance that it wasn't just them that was suffering outage. Yeah, I mean, there was a very um, anodyne statement coming out from uh, WhatsApp saying, we know people had trouble sending messages on WhatsApp today. We've fixed the issue. We apologise for any inconvenience. Um, Okay, then. Uh, Apparently, sort of about... Gosh, 70,000 people plus um, were uh, reporting disruptions. That's from the guys from Down Detector, Mm. which is apparently a business. Who knew? So my question is this. We had text messages forever, right? Um, You can now send pictures and various other things through text messages. Why does WhatsApp feel like such an extension of your arm in a way, like, you know, like phantom limb when it's down, in a way that text messages never did or don't. And why, I mean, you could just start texting people instead, but we don't. Why so? Well, you pay for text messages. Ah, that's not it. Is that not it? I don't think anyone's sitting there thinking, that just cost me six fills or whatever. Are they? I mean, unless you're a heavy user. I don't know, it's very regional, isn't it? It's like a lot of my friends and family in the UK still balk at the amount of the times we use WhatsApp because they'd rather message each other, um, text message each other, whatever, because there is no cost within the UK, etc. And that's the easy, that's that's a, that's a simpler way of getting in touch with people. WhatsApp is is deemed to be so. Yeah, to your point, because WhatsApp is deemed to be more personal and therefore for family and friends than business. I think it's the ads. I'm looking at my old-fashioned text messages, which I never look at, and there's 150 unread, which is very very unlike me. And going in, it is ad from a hospital, ad from a car servicing place, uh, ad from a meal delivery place, um, a reminder of, a, of an appointment, ad from a pharmacy, ad from something I can't even tell what that is, ad from a makeup shop, um, hairdresser reminding me of appointment, um, ad of having a blood urine test at home, useful. Um, exa- it's advertising. It's just been taken over by advertising. And I think that's why we've abandoned it. It's just spam. Yeah. I think also the difference with WhatsApp, it's so instant because you know to, you see when the two ticks, it's been delivered, blue when it's been read. You can also change that, but still, but it's that reassurance that it just yep. causes paranoia. <laughs> but it's all back up and running, so we're all good. Yeah, everybody's, everybody's happy WhatsApp's back. And yet, New Zealanders don't use it. The Americans don't use it. As Tom said, his family don't use it. I've tried to get my dad on it. My goodness, the pain, the pain. And trying to get him to... This is a man who turns his mobile off when he's not mobile, i.e. not in the car. Anyway, we're going to fit homing devices to them effectively. Maybe sort of those little air tags for the, uh, for the, for the legs so we know where they are. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Let's talk banking now. Rahil Ahmed is the CEO of RackBank. He's with us in the studio. Rahil, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Great to be with you, Richard. So as we've been reporting, cracking set of quarterly numbers uh, for the bank, 54% increase in quarterly profit up to 351 million dirhams. How did you do it? So uh, three M's, uh, macro, uh, you could almost be on a different planet here in UAE versus the West. Uh, We have great macroeconomic momentum in this country. 
mix, which is the mix of business we are doing. So we are much more diversified. And not only on the asset side, uh, Richard, but for those of us who had forgotten a high interest rate environment, if you have main banking relationships on current accounts, suddenly current accounts are worth 3 4% margin now because interest rates have gone up. And, uh, and the third one is uh, really on the momentum side. We have very good balance sheet momentum, both on the, on, the, uh, on the deposit side as well as on the asset side. And we are there with our customers helping and supporting them. Well, let's talk about some of those customers. As Brandy and I were chatting, we think of RackBank as being, if not predominantly an SME bank then, then one of, if not the leading SME banks in the country. What was the story for SMEs in this quarter and indeed throughout the first nine months of this year? Sure. So we uh, we have so far opened 8,000 SME accounts this year. We have lent almost 6 billion dirhams to 3,800 SMEs uh, in this year. So really good momentum. Uh, you are seeing predominantly a lot of new companies. So 60 to 65 percent of our accounts have been for people who have less than one year of trading license. So a lot of new companies coming into the UAE. Uh, but we are also seeing growth in, in, in SMEs, particularly that are linked to hospitality, to tourism and to construction. Right. So we've seen a lot of growth and naturally the SMEs always benefit uh, when those sectors are growing. Geographically, where are most of those companies based? So bulk of it is still in Dubai. So I would say almost 65 to 70 percent of the companies are being registered in Dubai and then naturally followed by Abu Dhabi and Russell Khema. Uh, where actually we are parent banks, so we do a bit more business there as well. Well, let's talk about your, your own backyard, Ras al and the type of SMEs that are being set up there. I know whenever I drive to Ras al often to a hotel, often, you know, you drive through the industrial area and you know, there's a lot going on there in terms of manufacturing and industry. And then you get to the hotel strip and there's clearly a lot going on in tourism as well. What are the hot sectors for you? What are you lending against? Yeah, so I think uh, very diversified. So we have, uh, we have naturally got big companies like like Rack Ceramics, you have got the, you know one of the largest limestone crushing facilities in in Rack. But as you rightly said, tourism and staycations have through the pandemic really really risen in Rack. So there's a lot of SME lending going against that. However, with Rack Economic Zone and Rack ICC, we are also seeing a lot of e-commerce companies, digital companies, online companies emerging there as well. We've been chatting about the drop in ad revenue for for YouTube, and it's largely mm-hmm. in financial products. Right. Um, people watching ads for for mortgages and and presumably clicking through um, for loans and the rest. With interest rates rising, do you expect to see borrowing drop? What's your outlook? So uh, the short answer is yes. Naturally, affordability as interest rate goes up, uh, borrowing will drop. UAE is a very interesting economy. And even if you look at some of the numbers that we largely get the most recent numbers from Dubai, uh, villa sales, which are at the top end where there's more cash buyers, is continuing to boom and the prices are going up. Apartment sales and apartment prices are starting to stabilize as, as you know, the affordability. The second thing is supply and demand. So how, is, how much stock is available? So I think for the first time, off-plan properties have had more mortgages than ready properties after a very long time in the UAE. 
What about your business borrowers, those, those SMEs that Richard has been talking about? I mean, they will be just as affected by rising interest rates. Are you expecting uh, to see less loan activity? And what does that mean for you as a bank? Yeah, so I think it depends on the sector, Brandy. So there are SMEs that are able to pass on the increase in their cost to the end consumer. So if you are in tourism or, you know, you're supplying to hotels, whereas, you know, the, the hotel rates are continuing to go up, then you can pass on your cost. We also have many businesses who are sitting on inventories that they had bought in the in you know before the inflation hit them so till they run out of those inventories yes but there will be sectors where, where they can't pass on the cost and those definitely get impacted so if you think about traders if you think about commodities then uh, yeah you're already starting to see a slowdown so so it's not a single answer it's it, it really depends on the sector i'm stealing richard's interview here but what can you do to make the pain um a little less with rising interest rates for your business customers. I mean, that's what RackBank has built its 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 name on, dealing with people mm-hmm. um, in that smaller sector who we know when globally things get tight often have issues with, with cash flow. Yeah. So uh, I think uh, the... One of the reasons you will see the loss ratios of most banks being significantly lower than where they were pre-pandemic is because the whole mindset about how you help people who get into financial difficulty has changed. So bounce checks and skips are a thing of the past almost. Uh, We do a lot of debt counseling. We have a very uh, robust, proactive approach where we engage with our customers, we sit down with them, we look at their cash flows, and we almost do, you know, uh, whether it's restructuring or helping them to manage their cash flows. The second thing is prudence in lending, right? So don't over lend to people who may not be afforded. So we do a lot of stress testing. We look at affordability based on 3%, 4% higher interest rates so that we are not over leveraging our customers. Wealth management is a good example. Again, people have naturally built leverage positions and so on and so forth. Um, we have been one of those banks where we were prudent. We didn't give people 10 times leverage on their investments. Uh, and therefore, while our customers have naturally lost money as the markets have come down, they've perhaps not lost as much as they may have with others. How is inflation impacting you? Your staff are going to be coming to you like every CEO in the country saying my rent's gone up, my expenses have gone up, I need a pay rise. So, so definitely inflation is impacting uh, the, the labor market. I don't think it's, a, it's, a, it's an unusual phenomena here in UAE. But I think most companies are doing what they have to, not only from a direct salary perspective, but an overall comp perspective, how we work, you know, flexible working and all those type of things. And yes, we are, we are, we are managing that as well. A final quick word looking forward to 2023. As you say, it's like we're in a different world here in, in the Gulf the global economy and all kinds of trouble, and yet here we are booming. Is that sustainable, that that decoupling, to use the old phrase, from 2007? So I, I think you're like in a Formula One car, you know, there's a turn coming, you don't know how hard the bend is right now, and you know, when you start applying brakes, uh, but we will have to apply brakes. Um, I don't think, given that we are such a global economy, we'll be insulated. Uh, but clearly, the economy here is doing much better. So I feel the impact will be much lower. And it will most probably come with a lag of six to 12 months.
Rahel, always good talking to you. Appreciate your time this morning. That is the voice of Rahil Ahmed. He's the CEO of RackBank talking about their quarterly earnings up 54%. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Right then, let's talk about the big event happening in Saudi Arabia this week. It is FII, Future Investment Initiative, sometimes known as the Davos in the Desert. We're going to be speaking to one man who's there in a couple of moments' time. First up, though, Tom, you've been watching the videos on YouTube and the name, the, the people there. I'm just, yeah, I'm just, they've got a dedicated channel on YouTube, uh, the Future Investment Initiative, and just the oh, names yeah. they've been able to bring to Riyadh. Uh, looking at the, this is day one. Uh, and this is just a, uh, a soupçon of some of the speakers. Makesh Ambani, Jared Kushner, Matteo Renzi, uh, obviously His Excellency Yasser al-Rumayan, uh, His Royal Highness Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman al-Saud, David Solomon, Ray Dalio, Jamie Dimon, Stephen Schwartzman, Dr. B- Patrice Mazzeppe. I could go on and on and on. That gives you flavour. <laughs> Talal Malik was in the room. He's the chairman and CEO of Alpha One Strategy. It's a consultancy based in Jeddah, Dubai, and also in London. And he's with us now, joining us on the line from Microsoft Teams from Riyadh. Talal, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Richard. How are you doing? I'm really good. Thanks very much indeed. Just give us a sense of what it was like to be in the room with, with that much wealth and power. It's, it's incredible. I've been attending FII for the past um, five years, the sixth edition this time. And yeah, it's incredible as it is every year. Um, this year, more so, particularly because Saudi Arabia is you know, experiencing such an incredible growth this year, 7.6% uh, GDP growth by the end of this year, $80 billion in terms of a budget surplus, also by the end of 2022, as expected by the IMF. So a very exciting time to be here. So if we look at the Americans in the room, and that was some of the, the, the royalty of corporate America, and, and yet we know that um, you know, Saudi Arabia and the United States have had you know, differences of opinion on the, 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 the oil situation and the OPEC cuts a, a couple of weeks ago, but yet the American business people seem to be there in force. Absolutely. I just recently did an interview with Bloomberg and Fortune where I mentioned you know, the savvy of Wall Street know their history very well. Um, They know the difference between the the short term and the political versus the long term and strategic. And you have 400 Americans attending. You have uh, the top people from from Wall Street, uh, you know, Jamie Dimon, as you mentioned, and David Solomon. You've got 17 delegates specifically just from Goldman Sachs. Um, You've also got 80 CEOs coming in from China. So it's an incredibly diverse group from from all around the world here. It's not just a talking shop, is it, though? I mean, partly it's a talking shop. But deals get done, am I right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the number of sectors here is incredibly diverse in terms of investment opportunities, uh, you know, technology, infrastructure, healthcare, energy. You've got people who are coming here essentially to, you know, they're seeking capital, they're seeking to deploy capital or facilitate capital. So it's all about the deals, particularly here. You know, there's a lot of hype about these mega projects that we've seen, and, and yet a lot of cynicism as well. People saying, well, will they ever happen? Can something as big as Neom ever really happen? Will the line ever really happen? How do they balance that, the excitement and the opportunity, with the fact that if they are deploying capital, someone else's money typically, they've got to, they've got to question these things? Um, of course. I mean, you've, you've had a history of a number of projects within Saudi Arabia. You know, you've got mega projects and you've got giga projects, and they've all got different timelines on which they have to be delivered. Um, one of the most exciting parts about any of these giga projects for me is, is the vision of what Saudi Arabia can look like in the future. So even just from a marketing positioning perspective, um, it's extraordinary what they're looking to try and achieve. Now, when that's going to happen, there are specific timelines. And as we know, in terms of project management, 
um, particularly on con construction projects, infrastructure projects, those tend to move along. So um, you've got mega projects like King Abdullah Economic City, which are, you know, you know, currently happening and you know, there's greater investment towards those. And you've got the, the new giga projects all over the kingdom. Um, for example, in Medina, there's rural Medina and then there's Neom, you know, as well. So there are a number of uh, projects and all requiring different um, you know, sorts of you know, investment opportunities as a result. Uh, what in the established cities? You're based in Jeddah, you're in, in Riyadh today. Are we seeing investment going into those cities as well? Uh, of course, there's a there's a regional strategy f for across the whole of Saudi Arabia, um, which you know comes under Vision 2030. It's to you know literally help to diversify the whole of the country, not just um, Saudi Arabia, not just uh, Riyadh. Um, Riyadh is obviously the capital, so there's a huge amount to be to be deployed there by um, you know under the the supervision of the Royal Commission for Riyadh City. But um, it's a very uh, regional specific uh, focus under Vision 2030 to improve the quality of life across the kingdom as a whole. What role can people from the UAE play? What role is the UAE delegation having there? As I mentioned in the introduction, your, your offices are Jeddah, London and also Dubai. You know, Dubai is an exemplar um, city, you know, from where it was to where it's become um, and, you know, and the UAE as well, you know, as a whole, Abu Dhabi and, you know, the, and Sharjah and other you know, parts of Dubai. They're an exemplar which, um, you know, Saudi Arabia in terms of uh, its, uh, you know, its infrastructure capabilities, in terms of its vision, in terms of the facilita facilitation of ease of customer service, you know, uh, it can uh, acquire a lot of that best practice and also share it as well. And obviously you have a huge number of consulting firms based within in uh, in Dubai and a huge number of consultants who come to Saudi Arabia bringing that uh, international best practice and regional best practice to the kingdom. I myself was based in um, you know, Dubai for many years. I was a senior management advisor at McKinsey, um, was coming to Saudi Arabia a lot. Uh, that was my, my mandate uh, to a large extent. And you know, that's continuing and intensifying as well. Uh, finally, it's interesting that you say 80 Chinese CEOs there. We haven't been to many conferences lately where there have been a, a physical presence of Chinese CEOs. Good to see them back, I guess. Absolutely. I, I noticed them yesterday, um, you know, quite strong in, in numbers. You know, Saudi Arabia is, is trying to position itself as a global hub uh, between the East and the West. And that's why you see th those number of delegates. And you can see it in, you know, in the crowd as well as the number of people attending. Obviously, the biggest delegation with 400 delegates was from the U.S. And that's to be naturally expected based on the, the strategic relationship that they have. Talal, great talk. You really appreciate your time. Thanks very much indeed for getting up early to speak to us. That's the voice of Talal Malik, Chairman and CEO of Alpha One Strategy, who is at the FII, the big event sometimes dubbed the Davos in the Desert. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. We are looking at one of the top business stories this week, and that is Arab Tech being officially declared bankrupt by Dubai courts. Very pleased to be joined in the studio now by the lawyer Mark Raymond, who is a partner and construction practice leader at Pinsent Mason, the law firm. Uh, good morning, Mark. It's lovely to see you. Morning, Brandy. Thanks very much for having me. So this has been quite the journey for Arab Tech, which submitted its bankruptcy petition to the courts back in January 2021. In ridiculously simple terms, can you talk us through the steps in being declared bankrupt here? So, um, in fact, the, the journey started a little earlier than that. I remember um, talking to the uh, business breakfast in around October the year before when the, uh, the shareholders were mulling over what to do next. Um, essentially, um, the, the process has been 
a fairly lengthy one. The court has had to satisfy itself that the the application of the owners for the business to be wound up is is a correct one. So what we've seen over the last 12, 18 months uh, has been a committee of various experts investigating the the finances of the the company, looking at the, uh, the, the liabilities, looking at its asset position. And coming as a conclusion as to whether or not um, the company was indeed uh, in insolvent um, and what should happen to it next. And I think what we've seen um, on Monday was the court um, finally uh, putting the nail in the coffin in relation to what was to happen to the to to the company next. So we're now moving to the next stage. It's decided that it needs to sell the assets, realise the various um, assets in order to discharge the, the the liabilities and debts. And how does that work? So um, what we've seen is the appointment of um, two trustees. Um, they have been charged by the court of uh, in, in looking into identifying the assets, but actually more importantly, trying to work out the value of those assets. Uh, and so over the next period of time, um, they will be uh, the decision of the court's going to be advertised. Um, any remaining creditors uh, will be asked to come forward. Um, I suspect that most most companies, most people who have um, who are owed money or involved in some way with Aratech will have already come forward. But the idea will be to decide what the value of the the assets are and to, w- to work out how much can be realised, and then set that off against um, the, the various different liabilities. So. For example, what we, we have seen, what we do know is that there are a couple of, of the subsidiaries uh, within the Arabset group um, that are still um, thought to be viable, um, Target and, and Arabtech Engineering. So um, steps will be taken to see whether they can be sold off as going concerns uh, and the value realised from that will be put towards the, the, the various debts. Well, one of our big interests in this, um, in the business breakfast, isn't just obviously what happens to such a giant of the the contracting industry, but also the bigger picture, both for the construction industry itself and businesses and companies that are that are listed on our stock markets as a whole. So let's look at what it says for the framework of doing business here in the UAE. How much have new bankruptcy laws shaped what's happened to, to Arab tech and helped with that? Well it certainly shaped the way in which the the courts are dealing with um, that situation. I mean I've I've been um, working in in the Middle East and and Dubai for a number of years, and historically, it's always been extremely difficult if you are owed money or a company is insolvent to persuade courts to 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 render them insolvent. Um, there's been a real strong desire to see whether a company can be kept going, whether there's a way of saving it. That that hasn't particularly changed, but the rules have got a lot tighter. It's now become a lot easier. Uh, and a more transparent approach to to looking at um, how the owners of the company or shareholders can approach um, uh, liquidity issues, insolvency issues. So um, the, the the laws onshore um, relatively untried. Um, this is probably the well, in, in fact, it is the largest 
insolvency, I think, that has been dealt with. We we also see in, in other parts of the UAE, the ADGM has got various um, procedures which we've seen in relation to NMC, for example, slightly different approach. But the idea is to try and uh, obviously realise the assets, but also to make sure that the companies have an opportunity to, um, you know, if, if there is a way of saving them to do that, if not, to make sure that the, the creditors are protected. Um, I, th- I think the, the wider issue is the question of, in the construction sector particularly, how the the underlying causes of Arab tech's demise can be addressed. I mean, we've seen in the construction sector a history of very tight margins, particularly probably since the you know, the global financial crisis when I first arrived here. Um, we see a cyclical period where construction companies do well, but also do extremely badly. And I think the Arab tech, um, as I said, the Arab tech demise is probably symptomatic of perhaps some underlying issues which probably need to be addressed. Um, the insolvency legislation does, to a certain extent, do that, but probably more could be done. Okay. Well, what needs to happen then? Well, um, I, the the you know, there's a lot of reasons why Arab tech has has found itself in the position that it has done. Um, but if you look at the construction sector generally, I've mentioned very tight tight margins. It's an incredibly competitive sector here in the Middle East, and particularly in Dubai. Um, we've seen quite significant costs in financing projects in relation to bonding arrangements and and, and so forth. Which, which increases the, the underlying costs, but the profitability has pretty much remained the same. So to my mind, I think in order to uh, you know, um, address some of these systemic issues, I think um, looking at the way in which risk is allocated in the construction contracts, um, looking at a little bit more transparency in the way that um, the, the contracts are let, um, those are the sort of underlying issues which we've seen addressed in other parts of the world. And perhaps we need to think about looking at that here in, in Dubai. I mean, put that in context of where we are now. Our previous guest, the CEO of RackBank, was talking about a massive boom in off-plan property at the the moment. We know we're in a period where the cranes are going up again, and we've got warnings all around the world from everyone from, you know, sort of uh, global banking CEOs to the IMF and the World Bank that we could be headed into a recession. Is there a, a worry there in what you're saying? Is there a... A concern, a worry. Um, absolutely, absolutely. I, I think um, what we're seeing um, is that the, the, the really big projects, uh, we've obviously seen the end of Expo 2020. Um, we've got Etihad Rail, which is one of the bigger projects in, in, in the UAE at the moment. But actually where the money is being spent is probably more in the oil and gas sector at the moment. Um, so we're seeing a lot of activity in relation to that. But in terms of the bigger projects, yes, there's a lot of building for residential property, um, still seeing the hotels go up, as you say, but but we're not aware of those really big, the Museum of the Future type projects, um, which are really the headline, headline grabbing projects here in, in, in Dubai. Mark Raymond is lawyer, partner, construction practice lead at the law firm Pinsent Masons. Thank you very much for your time this morning. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.